Welcome to Frontier Fintech Podcast, a podcast that makes fintech inclusive, accessible, and understandable for everyone. Don't forget to subscribe to hear insights from founders, experts, and investors in fintech and crypto at worldwideweb.frontierfintech.asia or find our podcast on your favorite podcast application. Our guest today is Yoshi Yokokawa, the CEO and co-founder of Alpaca, a company that powers more than 100 fintech applications around the world. Alpaca offers equities and crypto trading software via API. And the company is based on the idea that every single person on earth should have access to financial markets like Americans do, which is great. And we love this mission so much. They want to bring him on the show today. I'm also joined by Armi, my usual co-host. And Armi brings expertise in fintech, crypto, and software investing from his role as a venture capitalist at IVP, a US-based growth fund. Hi, Armi. Hi, Yoshi. How are you doing? Very great. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Honored to be here. Hey, I'm excited as always. Lovely. It's been a lovely day today with the market crashing um, and everything's going red, both tech stocks and crypto. But yeah, despite the sadness, I'd love to learn more about Alpaca and its mission of democratizing investment for everyone around the world. So Yoshi, can you just share with us your story and how you got into fintech and, you know, founded yeah. Alpaca today? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm originally from Japan. You know, I I was in the Bay Area until like last year, but like I think like you know the one thing that I really felt very much kind of isolated when that you know Robinhood came out. You know, back in 2013, 2014, when you know like things were you know going super hyped, super cool website, commission free trading, and everything. Like you know, back in the day, it was really really amazing, right? And then I realized that because I was in Japan at that time, like I couldn't even download the app or like, you know, I couldn't do anything about it. And, you know, like 10 years later, you know, the, that nothing much changed since then. And I think that is the uh, kind of this the original frustration that I've had for a long time. Like, you know, I've, you know, I've, uh, I was born, raised in Japan and like I went to school in the US and like, you know, the, all the, you know, communication and the information friends that's supposed to be happening globally, you know, the borderless. And then I realized that like, you know, this thing is not global, like in terms of the investing and having access to, you know, those things. So th that's, that's the really like kind of the, the trigger events and like, you know, uh, the things that we wanted to be like, I wanted to solve this whole problem, you know, how we can make sure that it's not only for the people in the United States, but for like, you know, just really literally everyone on this earth planet and so that that's really the the problem that you know we, uh, we we wanted to go into that resonates with me a lot i'm based in thailand and i want i've always wanted to invest in u.s stocks but there's no good option to do so because all of the brokers their ui ux really sucks <laughs> and so what i did was that i went to the u.s on a like a tr travel trip and then i tried to get myself a phone number in the u.s just so that yeah. i can open a Robinhood account. And yeah. then when I flew back to Thailand, they shut my account down anyway, which sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, I, I completely get the reason why like Robinhood did that because, you know, we, Alpaca ourselves is a, you know, same as Robinhood. We are FINRA registered and like SEC registered broker dealer. And we have to deal with a lot of, uh, you know, anti-money laundering related stuff. 
know your customer, you know, there's a different like risk policy for each different countries, which we need to file and, you know, get audited. So now I completely understand how painful it is. But, and I think that that is why, like, you know, it is, I think, worth for us trying to figure out these painful things that nobody wants to do. Because I think like, you know, we have touched the pain ourselves. And most of the broker dealers in the United States who offer the U.S. stocks, they, of course, like, you know, are born and like raised and like, you know, grew up and like, you know, spend their lives in the United States. Like, why would they be so serious and trying to figure out this, you know, pain that they have never felt experienced before, which, which is actually like, you know, our very, very, like, you know, the key strength that we have, because like, we are the ones who have felt the pain ourselves that, you know, who want to solve our own pain instead of like, uh, well, like international is the big market. No, no, no. We, we ourselves is the ones that, you know, who felt that pain as a customer. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. I'm also from Thailand and moved to the U.S. when I was 15. So, you know, I never thought I would have a stock account until even a couple of years after I moved. And I think that reflects in the numbers really generalized. Like I think U.S., what over 50% holds a stock of equity. And in Thailand, yeah. India, Asia, Indonesia in general, are just well below 10%, right? Maybe yeah. recently it's a little bit higher, but still a huge gap. Yeah, yeah, so maybe- exactly. Exactly, exactly. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, so it's a 10% is the right number, actually. Like, you know, 50% of the household income of the United States, it goes to investing. And 10% in Japan goes to investing. I think like you know, 20 to 30% in Europe goes to investing. And, you know, this number has not really changed in the last 20 years. So it, it remains to be a big problem. Yeah, that's, that's some, someone need to change that for sure. That's, that's a clear, that's a clear problem there. And maybe with that, can you tell us a little more about how Africa works? You know, like exactly what happened the front end, back end, everything. Yeah. Sure, sure. So, you know, we focus on building, you know, what's so-called API, the, the basically the interface for programs to interact instead of the humans to interact, which is, you know, called more of the graphical user interface. But like, you know, how it works is that when the, you know, same as any other broker dealers, you know, when a user's or opens an account, like, you know, we do all those know your customer anti-money laundering check to make sure that the person actually exists and not a criminal. And then like, you know, we open the broker's account on our in books and record system. And then, you know, when she or he sends the money, you know, globally arrives to our, you know, basically custody bank that we have in the United States. And like, you know, that sits and like, you know, managed by uh, our accounting system. And then when the she or he want to make place trades by or sell securities, that goes basically to the clearing ecosystem at the DTCC which clears trades so that like, you know, the, the customer actually holds the securities in exchange of the cash that, you know, the customer actually, you know, put the cash into the system. And also like, you know, the trades get executed at the you know, market venues, like exchanges, market makers, so that the price that gets executed is the best price, price available, which is like, you know, very strict law of the, you know, the, as a funeral broker dealer called best execution or national best bid and, bid and offer. So those are like how the things work very mechanically. Hmm. Let me just zoom out a little bit from consumer perspective. So basically, you are not consumer facing, but you are providing the backend services for any kind of applications, trading applications that want to offer the service to the customer, right? So let's say I'm from a country in you know some of the emerging markets, let's say Thailand. There's this one 
fintech application that wants to allow me to trade U.S. stock, they can just work with Alpaca on the back end to allow me to do so. And so Alpaca will do all the heavy lifting of letting me open an account to buy and sell stock in the U.S. and execute trades for me. Right, that's on the front end part. Yeah, that, that 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 is completely correct. And I think like you know our beliefs of why we have been building this backend system instead of uh, building you know mobile app in Thai trying to serve you individually is that we we kind of realize that no one application fits all. And you know I really don't believe one application or one service can conquer every person's demands and needs. And especially, this is a financial services, which means like it relates to every single person, which means that like you know it has to be personalized, and it's very emotional because like you know what we offer in financial services is very much the same thing. One dollar is the same as one dollar wherever you get it. So which means that it's a it's a lot of you know segmentation and understanding the demands of the end users. So like even in you know the users in Thailand, you know it should not be built in the language of English. It should be better user experience if it's you know done in Thai. You know, same thing as Japan, and same thing as uh, you know different countries all over the world. That itself creates very different you know user experience. And I don't think anyone can be expert unless you are in the culture and like understand the context. So the only generalizable part is the basically backend infrastructure. How we can create those compliance and like process execution, all those things into the generalized developer friendly way. So that, like you know, persons and developers who understand the actual users' demand can build their experience as you know very seamlessly. So that's the reason why we have focus on the infrastructure side. Yeah, that makes sense because you know, like at the end of the day, the UX UI is one UX UI is not going to appeal to every single seven billion you know people. Like there will be languages, localization, you know, like even demographic and. Ages, you know, like differences, what 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 people prefer, and okay, recently I feel like we've been talking a lot about U.S. equities, but that's not true anymore, right? You guys also launched crypto recently. I would love to hear about that, given especially our last few episode have been about focusing on crypto. Yeah, so yeah, crypto has been something that like you know, we've been paying attention for a very long time. You know, we created in our. First, like you know, crypto entity inside of Alpaca for like you know, like five years ago, we have not touched it since like you know the last year. But like you know the the like you know the 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 direction and the the things that you know that's going to happen. You know, like Hitoshi, who's you know our co-founder and myself, we have been very bullish and like we've been you know true believers in that. The reason why like we start we launched crypto last year is really about like you know how the uh, demands from our clients came in as. The market pull, like you know, offering U.S. stocks in addition to you know the crypto, has become like you know the very much demanded by just you know instead of only offering stocks. So that was really the context and timing that we went into the asset class very very heavily last year. But yeah, like I think that you know crypto is a very very interesting space in a way that we have to understand each local regulation because I think like when we talk about crypto, we are talking about a lot of different things in crypto. We're talking about like crypto spot. Or like, are we talking about crypto derivatives? Are we talking about tokenization of other risk that you know we can you know wrap it around as a derivatives? Like, there are many contexts that you know we have to be thinking about. And then I think like the market is still just started, in my opinion. Even just you know attending, you know, I'm sure like you know army. I don't know how, what you felt at the you know Bahamas and FTX conference. Like you know that's what I 
felt like it's really really so early even though like ftx is like expanding so quickly and very big there are so many open spaces that you know like we can be positioned in that market yeah no 100 agree i think ftx is trying to do so many things and even them it's so overwhelming there's so much not just ftx but anyone else like you know like especially good founders can can in the fintech space slash crypto can can jump in that's just we just talked about this earlier which is there's just so many white space and it's more about prioritization of what to do next it's just too many things going on yeah yeah definitely could definitely. i could i jump in here and ask a question about the value prop because for alpaca the unique value prop is allowing anyone in the world to be able to buy and sell u.s stocks but crypto by nature it's already globalized a uh, global and decentralized so like what is the kind of value prop for people to come to Alpaca versus other providers out there? So I think like, you know, when people think that like, you know, everyone actually already has access to crypto, which I respectfully disagree, you know, there are actually a lot of regulations that like, you know, not very many people can actually have access to, you know, certain like you know, risk, right? I think when we think about crypto, there are multiple definitions inside of the world of crypto. I think like, you know, when we talk about access to, for example, Bitcoin or, you know, Ethereum's and stuff like that, we're talking about the risk of the crypto assets. And then like, you know, when we talk about, okay, we have access to the, you know, uh, a crypto in general by everywhere is that we're talking about like, you know, for example, like ecosystem or DeFi component where each of us can access to that touch into the ecosystem without any regulatory, like, you know, centralized framework. And I think like, you know, that there are multiple like, you know, contexts and definitions that's happening, but like in reality, you know, regulations are catching up in terms of like, you know, how, you know, they can see what's happening and they're trying to like, you know, have certain control. And it may not be the, the ideal of the true decentralized, like, you know, the, the what is that, like, you know, uh, ideal or heaven. But I think like, you know, that is something that will happen in my opinion, because like, you know, if you think about decentralized wallets, where like, you know, you want to, you know, own, you know, everything on your like, you know, phone or something without having the centralized, you know, Coinbase or something. But the reality is most of us feel more comfortable having the crypto custody at, you know, someone else like who's better than, you know, us, you know, doing that kind of thing. So it will be, of course, like, you know, centralized. And I think even we, when we think about internet, like it used to be free world, like, you know, every, anyone can publish their blogs and websites and like, you know, send the content out. But like, you know, there is of course a control right now, if you think about it, there's a like your know, service provider providing the, like looking at the uh, contents, right? Like, you know, moderating. And there's, you know, the filter that happens by Google or Facebook, like, you know, who's the a gatekeeper to give that information out. So there will be always a centralized way that to create like, you know, more modern rules. Because like that's actually what the most of us want and the most of us need, except of a very, very like, you know, niche, like, you know, people who really deeply understand the value of the true decentralization or true freedom, which is really not true for most of the people. So, so like, I think going back to your question, so because of that uh, reason, looking at the, uh, the history of securities regulation or compliance, it's about reading the history book. That the reason why there's a, you know, the certain restriction regulations where, you know, you, you cannot get like, you know, access to the securities is because of what happened in the past. There was a lot of, you know, the scams, there was a lot of uh, losses, but, and like, you know, the, the pains that, you know, individuals went through. 
And basically, like, you know, the regulators came in to try and protect the everyday investors and people. And that is really like, you know, the benefits of the good, right? So, so that's, that's going to be continued to be the case for the accessibility to the, you know, crypto and like, you know, a lot of the systems and like, you know, having understanding of the, how the world's going to, you know, work, understanding like, you know, how the history and the compliance and all those things. I think it's a very, very strong benefits that we have to understand. And like, as you see, like, like in the last several months, there's a more regulations coming up, right? On the crypto, like, you know, controlled by the Brazilian government. I think it was like last month or so. Uh, there's like, you know, Dubai, you know, pushing aggressively on the, you know, providing digital cryptocurrency license. This is actually like, you know, being aggressive on that meaning there's a more control. And more control comes with a lot of the restrictions that will come into play. And I think like there's always a similarity between the existing securities, you know, license and digital side of the things and like understanding both continue to be the key in my opinion. Mm, I see. So from, from the like fintech applications perspective, you're still allowing them to, pro, you're allowing them to provide crypto trading services in a compliant way, regulated way without them having to worry about, you know, the, all the frictions both on the regulatory side and also the secure actual custody and security side. Yeah. So, so, so I think like, you know, when we talk about like, you know, offering, providing access to the securities, providing access to the crypto asset, or like even within the crypto asset, there's a certain thing that's are not allowed in certain countries. There are certain things that's allowed in certain countries. So understanding the nuance of that and providing flexibility, how the format should be is really the key in my opinion, like, you know, the accessibility, not in terms of the liquidity perspective, but also actual distributable format and creating that is going to be the key. So like, you know, what I mean by that is, for example, like, you know, the bunch of those small coins are not really allowed in the United States regulation, but like you know, it is allowed in many other countries and that's just continue to change and, you know, get updated. So like just providing accessibility to that coins doesn't really solve the problems of the, how the developers want to offer the coins accessibility to their end customers. So we need to be like, you know, very creative. How can we allow that in certain formats? Okay. Should we place that into the securities category? How do we place that into non-securities categories? And, you know, we have to think about those like, you know, creative ways, how to present that accessibility to that risk in many ways. Okay, that's actually really interesting. So sounds like the easiest way, like not the easiest way, the most obvious factor is probably co on which coins available in which country, right? Like that seems like easiest for consumer to understand. Okay, like in, I'm an app in Indonesia, I can allow X amount of coins in the US, like you said, maybe only top 20 because of like regulation. Is there any other factor besides coin? Because that may be the most obvious, but something, you know, that maybe consumer doesn't even notice, but the application developer or fintech developer actually thinks a lot about, but, you know, might not, people might not notice. Of course, of course. For example, like, you know, if you think about, if you think about, like, for example, Indonesia, right, there is no, like, clear legal instruction that, that, like, you know, you can sell uh, non-Indonesian securities in, Indone you know, persons in Indonesia. And, you know, so, okay, how do we go around that? Like, you know, okay, how do we utilize CFD? Because like, you know, CFD is a contract for difference and like, you know, accessibility to the risk of the U.S. stocks may be equally exactly the same. However, it may be categorized under the more of the non-securities regulation instead of the securities regulation. 
And same thing is happening in like, you know, the certain countries like Europe as well. Like, you know, some company like Bitpanda, like, you know, they offer the accessibility to US stocks and crypto, but their for- formats or like how they present it may not be the actual crypto on spot or US stocks itself, but it's through contract for different CFD. So, you know, and, and like, you know, some, some pro- companies offer that US stocks accessibility as US stocks as it is and crypto on spot as, as it is as well. So there are many ways to categorize those things by adding, you know, different ways of, you know, structuring when you're presenting that. And that creates different flexibility per each country and jurisdiction to be able to offer that to their end customers. And I think that's very different for unique for each of the jurisdiction. And I think it's going to continue to evolve how it's going to be categorized. I love that. I feel like you're half a tech company and half a regulatory compliant company. Because you're finding like new ways to actually structure these financial instruments so that everyone can actually trade the assets, which is a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot yeah, of work definitely, to definitely. go into the law and yeah. regulations of every freaking country and try yeah. to come up with these new ways yeah. to provide access to the people. Yeah, yeah. So so like how, how we think about it is always like, you know, mission, vision, strategy as a company, right? Like everything, every decision making comes from that. And our mission is to offer financial services access to every single person on the planet. And how we get there as building is the developer infrastructure for global investing. So in order to do that, like, you know, we have to think about not only the, you know, of course, technology side or like what works only in the United States, but we have to categorize like, you know, what we need to build in terms of the, you know, compliance regulatory as a service and, you know, making it into like invisible in a way, because we don't want any developers to think or even get concerned about those regulatory requirements because we don't want our developers and clients to worry about it we need to be worried about it so much and we need to be so creative and flexible so that they can do it without thinking about it at all and that's our goal so actually yeah on that like i see a lot of reason why you want like there will be a lot of value on that short term because things change so much and no one have a standard on it what about fast forward five years ten years from now where things are a little bit more stable and figure out and then if somewhat somehow i don't know maybe do you think things will standardize on, you know, one way and the value will be, you know, slightly less because now, you know, instead of a need of, you know, specialized, you just plug into one API or just do it yourself because it's just so common now. Like, what do you think about that long term? I, I wish that will going to be the case, which I don't believe because like, you know, think about accessibility to U.S. stocks, right? Like, you know, the regulatory framework around the U.S. stocks and securities happened 1933. And it's been almost 100 years. And if you look at globally, okay, one country, Indonesia, it has no mentioning about, you know, non-Indonesian securities. Actually, it is the same thing. It's very similar to Japan too. Japan has no mentioning about merging trading on the non-Japanese stocks in the regulation. So even with those 100 years of history of this what's so-called stable, probably, securities framework, there is just so many, like, you know, the, the missing points of the each countries and each major countries have. And, you know, crypto, it, it has to go through the next 80 years to get to where we are in terms of the securities. And we probably still wouldn't see the stability and the, you know, kind of common ground across the countries, in my opinion. So I think, yeah, I think it's going to happen like this. 
why do you think that's the case? It's been, like you said, a hundred years. And yeah, yeah. It, it just really like, you know, the matter of like, you know, how the, you know, politics work, right? Like, you know, the controlling the securities and accessibility where the investor money goes, it's really about like kind of go, 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 like, you know, governing policy perspective, because if the money goes into the foreign securities, it's getting invested to the companies outside that own country, which means it's going to be a less company, less money invested by that country citizens into that, you know, companies that of that its own country, which means the GDP gets affected. So like, you know, it's, it's, you know, affects to the revenue of the government, which is the tax from the institutions. So it's all connected, right? Politicians decide based on the, how the, you know, timeframe works. If you want to focus on diplomatic or like, if you want to focus on internal affairs, there's always, you know, swing between those, you know, two, you know, like extremes and like each of the country has a different cycle of the swings. And like, you know, that affects, of course, like, you know, the war or like, you know, the political conflicts. So, so that, that, that's the reason why, in my opinion, it just continue to happen like this. That's a great point. I think from a country perspective, they would want to retain the capital within the country and being invested, reinvested into the country. So how has the demand for US stocks changed over the years when you started in 29, early 2019, I believe? To like today in 2022, do you see a pickup in demand from other countries in the world to invest in U.S. stocks? Definitely, it's and I think it's going to continue to rise. And it is like you know also coming from the like you know the United States very much cultural impact globally and uh, you know like you know basically information domination you know that's coming out from United States, right? You know like when you think about you know tech investing, tech startup, people think about Silicon Valley or California. It is because of the branding and PR of that place. And of course, there's a, you know, politics and the policies that went in effect of that. Same thing for a Wall Street. Like, you know, anyone who wants to be the, you know, best in the world, like, you know, the most likely, most of the companies trying to go IPO in New York instead of like, you know, the local countries to become gained awareness globally. And which is good for those institutions who want to go IPO in different countries because you get, you know, marketing power that works globally, right? So. That, that's the reason why, like, I think it's going to continue to create this uh, trend that, like, you know, demands into the U.S. stocks will increase, and the more attractive companies continue to be on the, you know, market of the U.S. stock exchanges as well. Okay, shifting back to crypto, because yeah. like, you know you work firsthand with these, like, you have to monitor it, right? Because if it, it, I'm sure if you offer like one of the coin as part of a and, and you truly don't believe it yourself. You think it's going to go to zero, for example, like, and you offer that as through API and, you know, like people lose a lot on that. That's not truly democratizing, right? Because that might discourage people from investing, actually. So one question I have, it's like, like, do you also do diligence on which coin to offer to people? And, you know, what's your thought on some of these latest things in the market that really has really been volatile and some could go to zero per se. I, I think right now, like, you know, for, for us right now, we don't have that problem yet because like you know, our crypto offering has been mainly those things that are commonly traded and aware, you know, have a, enough awareness only in the United States. So we have in a way like in restriction and limitation to what coins that we offer. And the, the coins that we handle right now is like 21 coins. They are very much, you know, not that like, like small, small, weird, super small coins. But like, I think the point expanding that into the different coins, yes, I think we do have that kind of 
problem for sure. And I think like, you know, what, what we believe in is really the accessibility. And I actually don't use the word of a democratization of the access at Alpaca because, you know, democratization means a lot of like nuances as well. Like, you know, different culture has a different opinion about democracy. And like, you know, I actually, and as Alpaca really doesn't want to, you know, get into the conversation that we're just providing accessibility to, you know, financial assets. So just making that available. With that said, like, you know, we're trying, our job is trying to create the accessibility as much as possible in many formats as possible to investable assets. However, you are bringing up the right point. Like, for example, if you think about, you know, traditional securities market, there's a lot of uh, basically cutoff points, right? Like, you know, certain market valuation, certain liquidity that won't get into the listed stocks because of the risk that to, you know, protect investors. So we, of course, have to implement similar thought process that has been proven that, you know, you know, has been brushed off for the last hundred years. And so we have to, of course, like learn the history and like, you know, implement something that's probably similar way to make sure that investors are protected. Mm, okay. So with that, how do you think about, you know, like more recent things that are going on? I don't know, maybe I don't, I don't want to name specific protocol, but. What's your, what's your thought on some of yeah. the volatility yeah. and, and yeah. things that you think may be sustainable, yeah. maybe not? How do, yeah, how do yeah. you sift that through when there's, when there's so many, you know, like yeah. go, right, things right. going on in the market? Yeah. When we're talking about stable coins or like, you know, other, like, you know, other, like, you know, coins, it, it really also comes down to like, you know, the, what is the business models of that protocols, right? In a way. And like, I think that's also, if we think about just regular companies, not DAO, like you know, traditional centralized companies as well, we have to think about business risk of the, each of the business, which means like business risk of that each protocol. And I think like, you know, what we have been discussing about this stable coin is that about the risk of that protocol, how it works. And my like, you know, humble experience, what I've seen always witnessed is the like like you know the market naiveness or like I wouldn't say market naiveness like you know people's naiveness towards the black swan events or long tail events. You know we live in a very short amount of time, which is like around like what is it, eighty to hundred years. But history rhymed itself for like last thousands of years, and we tend to see only what we have experienced in our lifetime, and that is I think weakness of human. Even though we read a lot of books. We don't learn until we experience, right? And that, that is what exactly I felt like watching what is a Silicon Valley drama, right? Like on, on the, like, you know, the Hulu and like, you know, reading Ben Horowitz, hard things about hard things. I was reading it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that could happen. That could happen. But like, you know, exactly same thing happens to us. Same thing happens to me. And there's no way to hedge it. And, and, and then I experienced it. Oh, oh, this is what he was talking about. Now I really see it. Now I don't think, you know, I, I, I will, you know, have that thing again. But I think that is the whole process of like, you know, how the human brain works, in my opinion. And that is what's so like, you know, we are so naive about these events that people say that it could happen, and but we're not prepared. And I feel the same kind of naiveness of the people in this, like a lot of uh, algorithm-based stable coins. Because, you know, when we say about stable coins and, you know, the pegged, Generally, historically, it means it's a hundred percent pegged. Once it's not hundred percent pegged, it becomes a credit and the trust into the protocol itself. 
And when the credit and protocol, uh, credit and trust and protocol deteriorates because of certain market events and reasons, it creates unreasonable, like, you know, the, the gap between the, what actually should be. And like, you know, a lot of the times market don't have enough time to correct it. And that's what happens to Lehman, what happens, in, what happens to LTCM, what happens to a lot of the, you know, depression that happened in the, you know, history of the, you know, thousands of the years of the capital markets. So that's why I feel those risks should be described and made it aware when we are like, you know, selling that protocols in terms of the accessibility of buying those coins. And I think that is the basically S1 when we think about US stock market. And like, I, I don't know, like that has been actually really clarified in many ways. That's what I kind of worry about. Do you think there's a way to come back from this? If you see the history, like, you know, it always didn't come back, right? Like when that some kind of reserve currency loses the trust, it's a downward trend. Like, you know, you have to peg it in a different way or like an always discount. And what happens is the new reserve currency or new protocol with the trust comes out and take over that position. And that's what happened if you look at what happened in history. So with with the current situation, most likely people will revert to using fully backed stable coins. Well, well I think like when I still like, you know, again, like you know, fundamentally, I have a question. Why when we say stable coin and it's not hundred percent backed, I, I still don't like, you know, get the right answers from anyone about this, like, you know, my like a very immature question about this whole thing. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think probably, in my opinion, I can see why people would assume so, given that today monetary policy and the money supply is not fully backed. And so they would assume that in crypto, it doesn't have to be the same way. But going back to your your answer earlier about the fact that in the real world, there is actual last resort, which is the central bank, who can actually come and step in and help provide that backstop for whatever downfall it is, or the IMF, which is created uh, as a result of the crisis. But here in the crypto world, there's no such backstop and no reserve, no last resort of reserve to help provide that backstop yet. So, and I think that's why compliance and rule of law is really important for people to like trust the partial backed reserve currency yeah and it, it even didn't work in that whereas the central banks and ultimate liquidity providers have existed right and that comes down to the concept of comparison between different currencies and i think the currency doesn't never stand alone by itself it's always you know discussed in the you know currency pairs in terms of like you know understanding the value so like it's always about which is more trustworthy and that's happens like, you know, this thing, right? Like there's no ultimate solution of, uh, you know, hundred percent works. However, I think like, you know, the first checkpoint that any currency has to understand is that it has to peg to something that's stable. And if it's not like, you know, it has to have a, in, enough economical military power to make sure that that thing is actually controlling the world so that it's very, very stable and, you know, not yet for the whole cryptocurrency world itself. And then not yet for like, you know, any, I think like, you know, start up the algo based stable coin protocol, in my opinion. And like, you know, that if that any foundation of that new stable coins trying to create some kind of central bank reserve mechanism, that itself is a humongous lift. 
And like, you know, that requires like, you know, same amount of the US government's, you know, buying power to do that in order to peg it like in a real way without having the actual reserve. So that's what I just still don't understand, like in doing my equations and logic, like, you know, the answer always goes into the same answer, like, and then like, you know, people rely on statistics, but then statistics is never be hundred percent. That's why there's a bell curve. And there's always like, you know, the bunch of like 95% to 99, 5%, 9.5%. And it's going, going on forever. It will never be hundred percent. So that's what I worry about. I love the explanation of the long, long tail, how that affects. This is really good. And I guess I hear a lot of, you know, people drawing parallel and you said it yourself on Lehman and LTCM and, you know, Asian financial crisis. Can you actually maybe put that into a simple expect like you know description of how that works because a lot of our audience probably never even lived through that or like you know quite a while ago especially for younger audience like how those happen and how you know like how exactly does this situation parallel to that yeah so i think like you know any any like you know, ltcm or like you know, lehman brothers like everything comes down to always like you know making the scenarios of what could happen in the future so that always comes down to, for, for example, like investment rating, right? Triple A, triple B, whatever it is to the, like, you know, how, how stable, how credible, you know, you can take the leverage so that you don't blow up. You always have some kind of scenario analysis and the calculation. And when you think about scenarios, what will happen, which, you know, same, same thing as like, you know, Dr. Strange, like thinking about what would happen in the future, it always comes back to like, you know, what had happened in the past. And when we think about what ha- had happened in the past, usually credit, credit ratings or like, you know, those uh, anal- analysts only go back to a certain amount. They could go back to a certain amount because there's not much of the data usually. And usually it goes, you know, back like, you know, as long as like you know, 50 years or something, right? Same thing as tsunami that, you know, Japan's got attacked, like you know, when the Fukushima uh, uh, you know, radiation, you know, gets spread out because like, you know, they did the same scenario analysis that tsunami won't happen you know, this humongous way, as long as they went back the history of 70 years. But the reality is that like, if you look back, look back 75 years or 80 years or like hundred years, like even extraordinary events have happened that so that your scenario just doesn't work and like you get collapsed. And that are the most of the times, like what happens in terms of the fundamental understanding of what happens, what happened at Lehman or LTCM or Asian, you know, the, the currency crisis. Like, you know, we always think about what would happen in the future and like, you know, we, we have to, but we always, I think, underestimate what could happen when we go back the history, like, you know, we're not going back long enough. And I think that's what happened. For example, Lehman Brothers, like, you know, they always made a calculation of like, you know, borrowing some money and then, you know, putting that money into work in the risky assets. And if, you know, your borrowing rate, like, you know, if you borrow, you have to pay back, of course. If your borrowing rate goes up at a certain level, this model of like you know, investing and paying back just doesn't work anymore. So you have the scenario analysis going back last 70 years, which is basically credit rating agency does. Short-term credit rating of the certain company, long-term credit rating of the certain company, that's decided by the rating agency. Rating agency does the scenario analysis back to 50 to 70 years. And looking at the capital markets volatility, it just doesn't happen. And that's what Lima expected. And what, that's what the market expected. And then something happened that's 
outside of the range that they expected in last 50 to 70 years of analysis, then the borrowing rate of the what Lima has to pay back just went up, skyrocketed. You know, they couldn't pay back anymore, simply. And that's what happened to the whole Lehman Brothers crisis. And like, you know, the people didn't expect the Lima would crash, you know, looking at the 50 to 70 years of history, which means the people who's relying on the Lehman Brothers not getting crashed is also got crashed. It just kind of, you know, the, the effect coming from this, like, you know, scenario analysis was not like conservative enough, I guess. And it will never be a right answer because like, you know, you can't predict the future, but you always have to rely on the history. And history rhymes, but it never repeats. I love that quote. History rhymes, but it never repeats. What's the end goal for, like, what's the success metric for you when you, mm-hmm. like, do, that you hold on to as a North Star? Yeah, yeah, yeah. North Star metrics is always about, like, you know, how many people we have reached. So, like, you know, the providing access to everyone on the planet, which means that, that North Star metrics has to get to 7.9 billion so we're just tracking towards that 7.9 billion. We are around like 2 million. So like we need to get to like around 10 million end of this year. And like, we want to continue to grow. So we want to get to the 7.9 billion. So that's, that's a North Star metrics that we have. Love it. Yeah. Wait, okay, question. Do you think that in each country, the winner, or it would, do you think the brokerage market would be a winner take all? Like, you know, kind of like Robin Hood, Schwab's are like really concentrated in the top players. Or is it going to be more fragmented? Because I'm worried that and this is like probably not on podcast. It's a genuine curiosity. Like, because like if you are dominating the market, you probably want to capture all the economics and eventually build your own full stack, right? Like, i.e., Robinhood. So how does that play out? I think there there's a two answers to that, right? Like, you know, one one is you know the like you know if the, any of uh, players get like a whole basically like you know the domination right like that that's the first question the second question is about if it gets domination enough that you know they want to build everything internally and uh you know answering to the second question first building internally the internalization happens in any businesses for example like you know that if you are putting a lot of uh, data into the servers like you know you were using aws and like you know you maybe start internalizing by having the kind of boxing internally in your place because of the latency issue because of the scalable issue kind of stuff so like it's kind of internalization, right? Like if, even if the infrastructure is so solid cloud, but like you, know, you may internalize more stuff internally. So I think that's that natural evolution of how the businesses work. So like if that, you know, people are so big, companies are so big, want to internalize like you know, clearing stack and stuff like that, they should. And like you know, there is no way or like you know, no intention us stopping them from doing that. But like you know, because what we're offering is like right now, at least it's a crypto and you know us stocks so for example agile like you know their main business is indonesian stocks so like you know the us stocks or crypto may be kind of secondary like would they spend their time and money to do that internalization or spend the money into the cpa and then get more growth so that's really the business decision that each of the player has to make and so it's really like you know the conversation like that so i don't think there's any clear answer like you know who in the, you know, people is going to always choose either or another. For example, SBI, which is the biggest broker dealer in Japan, online broker dealer in Japan, they still rely fully on interactive brokers. They have nothing internally for the US stocks. So that's one, one data point. The first question about domination, I generally don't believe that one player takes all. Uh, so that's why, like, what I mean by, like, you know, each of the segmentation needs different types of players. Because, like, even if you look at the United States, right, like, it's a Robin Hood 
it looked like they took a lot of market, but it's only really like, you know, focus on the millennial generation's mobile first generation. They're even missing out Gen Z now because it's a different generation, different segment. And that's how I think this financial services is so interesting. There's like, you know, tw- what is that? Like you know, 20,000 community banks. There are 20,000 local regional banks in the United States. In addition to Bank of, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, that, you know, people we all know about. There's a bunch of different banks. And the reason why for that is financial services is so commodity, which means in order to have the right like user experience, you have to be like segmented. Like, you know, if you're a community bank in Iowa, you want to really target only the citizens of this specific three cities in Iowa, right? And, and that's, I think it's going to continue to happen. Like it may not be regional anymore in the future because we are so online, but it's going to be a bank and financial services focus on millennial, it focuses on LGBTQ, it focuses on black community, it focuses on Asian Americans. It's going to have a different needs, different feeling that they want to provide. So I think it's going to continue to have a bunch of the different segmentation financial services. And I think it's already happening. If you look at the Challenger Bank roast, roosters of the United States, there's a bank that focuses on black Americans. And you know, there's a you know, Challenger Bank focus on Latinos. And I think that's going to continue. I'm yeah. doing a diligence on Bass right now too, like banking as a service, and there's like ten players. Oh my god, so much work! But yeah, I see a lot of. I think so. I think this is a more interesting market to me, actually. Yeah, but like, but, but, yeah, banking, banking as well, right? Like, it's 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 interesting because like you know, it's it touches everyone, and that's that that makes sense because Tam is like extraordinary. So you know that that's actually, what I Tam think. is my biggest question. Like, it oh. seems intuitively that Tam is big. Yeah. But I think that at the end of the day, the b- banking, you make money on like deposit, like interchange plus deposit. But I think revenue. accumulation will be yeah. in like the biggest players, right? Like 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 mainly gig economy, like Uber and like right. Instacart, DoorDash, which I think there's going to be so concentration on where it actually works. A lot of the, like a lot of uh, like other SaaS or consumer app going into banking, I don't think will really get that much revenue. And the, the, the willingness to pay for these applications was so low if you can't drive revenue, right? Like, it, it, to me, it's like, I can't see TAM being, like, outside of the top 100 fintech. Yeah, I, I think the revenue, in opinion, it just, like, shifts around with the waves. You know, the, you know for example, it became commission-free. I think, in my opinion, commissions will come back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, like, you know, the revenue model continued to change and evolve. And for example, if it's cross-border FX and like, you know, cross-border revenue will go up, right? And so like, you know, how the world changes, I think the movements of the money continue to happen. So I think there is a bunch of the revenue lines that we even don't know mm-hmm. is going to come. However, what doesn't change is that every single person needs money. Every single person needs bank account. That doesn't change. So that, that, that's how I, how I think about it. Because FX revenue was not really happening, like if you think about like you know, 20, 30 years ago, but now we are moving around, like, you know, because of the whole, like, you know, work from anywhere, live from anywhere. And that creates more transaction cross-border and that creates more revenue opportunity, which was not the case, like before COVID. So even those like, you know, social changes creates like a you know, different behavior where the money moves around. And that's, I think is continued to be the opportunity in my opinion. Yeah. So the key is, I think, like, you know, of course, not like how, how many people you have that ultimately that, that, you know, is a source of the potential revenue and uh, you know, ongoing revenue. Yeah. I think the difference between trading and banking is banking yeah. is like really limited to one country. Like 
like if you offer banking as a service in the US, that's the market. Mm-hmm. But for mm-hmm. you, it's like you trading equity slash crypto equity that's mm-hmm. addressable mm-hmm. across the entire world, like world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The thing about it, like, you know, the, the user from Japan or Thailand has to send the money to somewhere cross-border, right? So that's a banking problem. And that's why, like, you know, I believe that us, we need to be in the banking business. And that's why we own the books and records and the custody. So we think about our business as more of like wallets and banking instead of investing. It's just investing product is a hook or bait for the Trojan horse that like the people move the money around. It can be anything. But, but but the banking is on your part, right? Like the trading app does not does not care about that banking part. And or do you think eventually they're gonna upsell it? But why would people in Thailand want a bank service in the US? So so they don't see that as a banking service. They see yeah. that accessibility to the US stock or assets, but underlying infrastructure, we are actually doing the banking operation. Yeah. If that makes yeah. it cross-border yeah. banking operation. Yeah. So the revenue comes from that, right? And in order to provide the experience seamlessly to the end users, they shouldn't even feel that, you know, money is US or Thailand or Japan or Europe. It doesn't matter. It should not matter. Yeah. Yeah. But then, but then, like, let's say the trading application blows up to like 100 applications, right? Mm-hmm. Only mm-hmm. you pay for the best, but then everyone else pay for your service. So I think so, the, so, so the value that, that, actually that's, accrues that's on that. Yeah, so that's a model that we're doing is that we always share the revenue with the businesses that build on top of us. So that like when our platform ecosystem grows, the businesses who build on top of us need to grow. And that is the only way for us to grow. So when every time we make the revenue generating items, like, you know, the FX or like crypto revenue, we do share the revenue. And that has to happen in order to have the whole ecosystem grow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that part is clear. I'm just talking about like, which ba- the where the value accrues between the ba- the banking piece or the trading piece, which I feel like the trading piece accrues more because you only need one bank players, right? Which is basically you could use the banking players or build it yourself. But then the traders, like all these trading apps, actually accrues value to you. So like let's like right like in this trading, but I guess that's a bad example because like trade trade trading is also only one application of banking. Then bank you can build a bunch of other things on bank as well. I guess mm-hmm. I could think mm-hmm. about this more, but I don't know, like a lot of people have been saying the bass is actually not that big of a tap in the growth round at least. Mm-hmm. And that's why there haven't been like a big growth round. Like the biggest mm-hmm. companies were like Galileo, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think like if we're thinking about like domestic, I agree. Like it's very very difficult market in my opinion too. Like everything's very much commoditized. So yeah, if we yeah. don't look, look at the, how the people are moving in the new societies, I think it's going to be very difficult. And that's why deal is so successful, right? Mm-hmm. That remote working, because if deals deal like you know, operates under in the United States only, it will never be successful. The reason why mm-hmm. they're successful is like they adapted themselves into how the new society works, which is it's live, live from anywhere, work from anywhere. What we are missing in terms of the fintech, I, I believe so like the big opportunity in the fintech in general is cross-border because like when the people moves around, money has to move around, tax has to move around, like, you know, how our money investing deposit, like, you know, sending money to family has to move around. So it's going to be more opportunity cross-border. It's same thing as like, you know, insurance, same thing as, you know, employment, earning money. That's a fintech. That's a deal, right? That's, that's how, you know, HR software works. So. That, that's how I think like your deal got so successful because they focus on international and cross-border. Okay, yeah. If you're doing that domestic, it just you know, sucks. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
Thank you so much, Yoshi, for spending time with us. This is gold, and I would love to continue talking about this, and I'm mindful of the time as well. Army, do you have any last burning question? No, this is already really great. I feel like I've been asking a lot, so feel free to add anything you want to close out with, Yoshi. Any wisdom or maybe next step of alpacas or you know anything? Yeah, yeah. So like you know, alpaca, like you know, I, I just want to like you know talk about alpaca because like you know it's good for for the company, but you know we. <laughs> We want, you know, our goal is really to provide access to financial services to everyone on the planet. And it, this only happens only when, you know, we can involve more people who build on top of us. You know, we are humble enough to say that, like, you know, we cannot do it ourselves. And that's why we work with the partners, businesses who build using our infrastructure to offer the services to their end customers because we we don't know about the end customers and we will never know because you know we are limited amount of the people who don't have experience understanding every single person's user experience but that can change if we work with as many partners as possible so it would be great you know if you can catch our the the you know, check our alpaca.markets and you know touch our api if you're a developer and entrepreneurs and the makers uh, who can build your services to your end clients so yeah we need your help Actually, last question: Like, why alpacas? What's the name uh, come that's from? That's a great I question. Haven't, I haven't. I have never <laughs> learned that. Actually, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, alpaca, alpaca. Yeah, alpaca is a it's a symbol of success. That's what I. That's what I tell myself. The reason why is that, like, you know, when you drive around Woodside of the you know Silicon Valley, there's a house that has like thirty alpacas as pets in their yard roaming Wait, around. Is that is that legal? Yeah, like it's legal. Yeah, like you can have pets like a dog, and like you can have pets like alpacas as pets, right? And I was like, wow, like you know, these people who got so rich, you know, exiting and selling their companies, tech company in the Silicon Valley, have like nowhere to spend their money on, so they spend money buying like thirty alpacas as pets. Oh wow, this is a symbol of success. So you know that that that's the reason why it's called alpaca, and of course it's memorable. And it's so against those financial services and like ruthless cold-blooded numbers, right? It's it's funny, right? So that, that is the reason why it's called alpaca. <laughs> I That's love so the story. funny. That's so like Silicon Valley, you know, like how, you know, like some other part of the world that would buy a Ferrari or like yep. a nice watch or whatever in yep. here. Nope, you probably still drive Toyota but buy 30 alpacas. Exactly. It's, got, it's just so funny, right? And it's, it's just really like, so you know, funny. the lovely animal. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yoshi. Bye, Yoshi. Thank you, thank you. Thank you.